Thank you. Thank you so much for those nuggets of advice, which are really important for us at the junior faculty level to hear about the the frequent rejections, the how to moderate our expectations. And that really just segues into the last part of the conversation, which is the under the hood, which we talk about the behind the scenes, the nitty gritty, the uncomfortable conversations. And I'm hoping that we can talk more about those things that you just said and perhaps inspire some of the early career people that are listening. So I want to jump into the question about junior faculty. And so you talked about early in the conversation about being an administrator versus doing more sciencey type stuff. And then you just talked about team science versus, you know, working by yourself. And I want to pose the question, how should junior faculty prioritize their participation in these professional versus like academic service roles? So how do we balance that out in our early career? Yeah, that's a hard question. Um, I think, well, one, get a good mentor. Try and have a mentor that's in your department and get a mentor that's not in your department and talk to them both because early career stage folks get pulled in a lot of different directions because they are super well trained. They they're, they you know have the latest and greatest training. They're doing cutting edge work and they're getting pulled in a lot of directions in terms of people who want to you know collaborate with them and have them on their teams to uh, professional service requests, you know, outside of, you know, whether that's, I don't know. Um, And so pre-tenure, your currency, well, depending on whether, if you're, if you're in a hard money university, like uh, the UC, your currency or your publications. And then of course you want to get some grants so that you can support students to help you get your work done. But Grants alone are not going to get you tenure. You need you need to publish. If you're in a soft money situation where you have to feed yourself with grants, then you're going to be teaching a lot less and you, you're just a grant machine and a publication machine. And then you may teach a little bit, but it's a little bit of a different incentive structure. <clears throat> Service expectations tend to be a lot less because you have to spend a lot of time feeding yourself and feeding your lap. I think um, you want you want to make sure that any any professional service that you do you do it not because you have FOMO you know fear of missing out or because somebody really flattered you and said you would just be like because that's that's often what happens is people flatter you to encourage you to take on a a task serve on a committee. And I've I've made the mistake of saying yes way too many times. Like that, you know, I've gotten better, but I'm still, you know, it's definitely still something I try and work at. So I think you want to do something that you're excited about and that gives you that you're passionate about that doesn't feel necessarily like an obligation because you'll have plenty of service obligations within the university. So your professional stuff should be things that you really enjoy doing that also give you satisfaction and that could potentially also advance your thinking about the work that the work that you do or includes a group of people with whom you've wanted to work before thinking a little bit selfishly like 
what will I get out of it? How will this advance my creativity? How will this advance my productivity? What kind of contributions will I be able to make? Will it help advance? Is it in the science policy interface and maybe enable me to do more research translation work where my work can have more of an impact? In which case, yeah, then maybe you do want to do it because you want to have opportunities to make sure your science has has an influence. So I think those are kind of criteria that you want to think about when you're thinking about professional service and you want to run it by mentors that you trust and who think like you in terms of, you know, for me, I want to do great science and I want to make sure that that science is able to be translated into some form of action. When I talk to mentors, and I still have mentors, those are the kinds of things that I talk to them about in terms of when I'm thinking about taking on new tasks. That's super solid advice for junior faculty. And hopefully that can be helpful to the listeners, the audience who are under the hood. <laughs> and the next question I want to ask also um, is helpful for early career faculty who are on the job market. Okay. And so you alluded to your time at Brown and then your time at Berkeley. So my question is, what are some of the major differences between working at a public versus a private kind of Ivy League university for people that are on the job market? Oh, okay. I went to public schools as a kid. I'm a product of Berkeley through and through. So I, I've always been public schools. So then, and then I taught at San Francisco State. And so when I had an opportunity to go to Brown, I was like, I don't know, you know, um, in part because also I never imagined myself going to an Ivy school. It, it didn't even occur to me to apply to one. And in hindsight, I probably should have, you know, but I, I had a mom who was a professor, but she was like, you know, do whatever you want. Like, she didn't like say you have to apply to these. I I was, and actually I appreciate that in hindsight that she didn't didn't push me. I didn't have a mother who was like telling me or an academic parent who was telling me what to do with my life. So I was kind of skeptical about going to a place like uh, an Ivy League school. But I really wanted to live on the East Coast, and uh, people were incredibly nice, and they really seemed to appreciate what it, what I could bring to the university. And so I figured, you know, I would regret not trying it um, more. Like I would rather go and have it not work out, but at least have the satisfaction of having tried it um, rather than not go and wonder for the rest of my life, would I have liked that? So in hindsight, it was the right decision because I went there and I was very happy there. It was, it was, a. I think Brown is kind of unique in terms of the Ivies. People often like to refer to it as the UC Santa Cruz of the Ivies because <laughs> uh, it's a little more unconventional. It has a lot of resources um, that you don't necessarily find. Um, so there's a lot of resources to help you teach well, for example. There are a lot of resources for students uh, to apply for money to go work. In a, and I was teaching uh, courses that involved like students doing work with um, EJ groups in the East Coast and other um, environmental groups. And, you know, those organizations don't have money to pay students. So Brown had programs where students could apply. And so the university would basically pay them to do the work in the summer that they were going to go do for the organization. So those were opportunities that and resources that 
you know, we don't have as much of, you know, in a public university. And it, it, it facilitated, you know, long-term sustainable relationships and it enabled you to be nimble in terms of take on new projects with very little notice because you didn't have to apply for a grant and wait for six months to come for it to come through in order to make it happen. You just, you were able to find, you know, you had a great student who was smart and very motivated and could get things rolling right away if an organization came to you to do things. So that was, that was incredible. So the resources are amazing. Teaching load, definitely lower, <laughs> um, but awesome. And classroom size, a lot of resources to help you teach well. Great programs where you could have an English major work with you and help students develop outlines and ideas for their papers before they turn them into you. And then you 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 would continue to work with the student, but they would sort of do some of the initial work or they were willing to read rough drafts of papers before students uh, turn them in. So those kinds of resources are kind of amazing and really help you teach well and engage your students in, and take them to kind of a whole new level in terms of, of learning. Some of the downsides that I didn't like so much, you don't have community college transfer students at a place like Brown. You just don't. And those are some of my best students. Those are students that for whatever reason, didn't go straight to college. And maybe they didn't, you know, life didn't go so well in high school and, or they messed up or something happened or they didn't have the money. And they went to community college and they come into Berkeley and they're just, their ability to seize that, seize these opportunities. It's not always an easy journey for them, that, tra that transition to Berkeley, but it's some of my most reward, rewarding students. And just the the promise of the UC system, the vision, you know, we have we are far from achieving that vision, but the UC system as a place where, you know, uh, educate a, a large proportion of Californians and, you know, we have the master plan. And even though the master plan has it's gotten a little tattered <laughs> over the decades, like, that's that's not something you're gonna you're gonna get at an Ivy school. Wow, thank you. I think that's a these are very important points to consider and just things to have on the forefront of our minds when we're making decisions about public versus private schools, if we're given the opportunity to join either one. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. But I, I was very happy. I mean, I I loved it there. And um, you know, I, I got over some of my own um anti kind of Ivy League. Uh, biases that I had, you know, going in there. I had an, some amazing students with incredible life stories as well. Well, we're glad you came back. <laughs> I am too. I was happy to come back. <laughs> well, and you know, Rachel, I've just enjoyed this time. And I do want to wrap up with one final question because you are a busy, busy professor. And so other people may not know, but you were or are serving on what we call the budget committee. And that's the committee that reviews files for, for faculty. And so the last question I want to ask is, and this is a question that's on many of our minds. Do you think that the goalpost is shifting for promotion at any rank? Oh, interesting. So like, has it gotten harder to get, uh, to get tenure and get promoted to professor? Is that your question? Have the requirements drastically shifted? 
based on the time. I've only been on the budget committee. This is my second year and I'm going to have one more year. So that that's my, that's my vantage point. The thing that I have seen on the, on the budget committee that has given me great satisfaction. Um, and that this is also different from Ivy league schools is the review process is surprisingly transparent at Berkeley. So let's say you're, you have a case for tenure, you put together your materials, then it goes to an ad hoc committee. You don't know who's on that ad hoc committee, but, and then it goes to the chair and the chair writes a letter and then it goes to the dean and the dean writes a letter and then it goes up the food chain to campus. And, you know, we, we see the case materials we review the case, we make a recommendation, and then it goes to executive vice chancellor and provost and, and the chancellor and the vice provost of the faculty. Throughout that process, you have a, candidates, you know, who are up for tenure promotion, have opportunities to read what people are saying, and you have an opportunity to respond. And, and we have a duty to incorporate that conversation in part of our evaluation. I mean, I went up for tenure at Brown and you submit your case materials and it goes in a black box and you have no idea what's going on until they tell you, you know, congratulations or sorry. So, you know, you can ask around and stuff, but like you don't get to actually log on to AP Bears and read these letters on the way and then, you know, type. So I think that part of it is is good. The other piece that I do like is that you do have a say of who your letter writers are. The department gets some say too, but so there's a goal to try and get, you know, an even distribution between names submitted by the candidates and names submitted by your department. I'm not sure. Well, you're in engineering, so I <laughs> I don't know how it is in your field. I think what I see is not to just do bean counting of number of papers. And I think there's become a lot more openness about what constitutes, you know, what counts. So I think a really interesting recent development is uh, a memorandum that was, you know, developed by the Senate and approved by the administration about what products from community engaged research should count in the research portfolio. What kind of metrics do you use to evaluate that 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 work that may not necessarily be in a peer-reviewed journal, but should probably count as research output? So, you know, how, uptake is this something that was submitted to an agency? How is it being used? Those things didn't used to count, and now they do. These are if somebody presents that and writes about it in their self-statement, and that guidance provides some really good requirements that that work count. So I'm not, I mean, since I've only been on the committee for two years, I, I, I don't know if the goalposts have moved in terms of more publications. I mean, I think some of the same things have always applied, like you want publications, you want publications that you clearly played a lead role either as first or last senior author that you were mentoring people to do it. Those, those kinds of things I think are still definitely part of the assessment. But I do think that there's been more of an openness and receptivity and valuing of the work that scientists do in collaboration with communities and an understanding that 
you know, peer-reviewed articles aren't necessarily the only output that is appropriate for people who do that kind of community-engaged work because, you know, that's not very helpful in terms of research translation or even how communities use the data that you have either co-collected or co-analyzed or, and so there's many ways and ways to credit some of the other products uh, that come out of that work that may not necessarily be, you know, the journal of this, that, and the other thing. We certainly, we, on behalf of anyone listening, <laughs> I certainly appreciate your transparency here and this wonderful guidance. Um, in, in full transparency, I've heard this, you all, I've heard it before because I get to be amongst brilliant scholars like Rachel all the time who are willing to sit down and talk. And so for those of you that don't really have access to someone like Rachel, I hope that this conversation sheds light on some of the ways in which you can be successful when resources are there structurally, when you have a mentor, um, and you can benchmark your experience, right, from hearing from someone that has just rocked the research world has trailblazed in the field of environmental justice and environmental health sciences and data science. And Rachel, thank you so much for this time. Thank you. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> yeah. And with that, um, I'd like to sign off and we'll see you all in the next video.